As you're probably aware at this point, we left uh, our sermon series on church values behind, and we've picked back up in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, This morning, we're going to take a look at chapter 6. If you remember last week, we uh, described the process of church discipline. What we said is the church has authority to uh, help come alongside believers who are struggling and help them grasp, uh, deal with, wrestle with uh, the sin that uh, each one of us from time to time finds difficult to put to death. And there are other times where maybe we've become made aware of sin and our hearts get hardened and we just refuse to repent and turn away. And so uh, the Lord has given the church authority to help um, uproot sin from amongst the congregation, uh, from amongst different churches, uh, and going through this formal process of, of dealing with sin in the lives of individual members. And uh, ultimately, it's not for the exercise of power or authority. It, it's for the benefit of the church and the benefit of the individual, because what Paul described in chapter 5 is that if Christ has redeemed us and what he's going to go on to say here in chapter 6, if he's washed us, if he's sanctified us, then the expectation is that we're continuing to put off sin and be made more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so it's always with the, the forward-looking uh, objective of helping us lay aside sin and become Christ-like that we engage with church discipline in the lives of individuals who refuse to repent. And so it's not something that I hope that we uh, ever have to navigate through, uh, and yet it is something that God gives the church uh, for her benefit and for the benefit of individuals, ultimately. So this week we're kind of hovering around some of the same themes, the uh, authority that God gives the church. And we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and read a little bit about that authority in a, in a different manner. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers But brother goes against brother uh, to law, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So Paul 
kind of jumps into the action without a lot of context laid. And so if, if we're just approaching this passage from uh, kind of the way we are, from, from nothing really, it might be difficult to pick up on what's going on here. Apparently what's happened is that there are some Christians who are taking other Christians uh, to civil court. Uh, maybe there have been some in the church who have withheld wages from uh, someone within the church who's worked for them. Uh, there, Paul, Paul uses this term that some have been defrauding others. And so as a result of that fraud, as a result of not receiving what's rightfully owed to the individual, the wronged party has gone before uh, the secular legal authorities and said, look, I've got a case against this other person. And unfortunately, both of these are members of the same Corinthian congregation. And Paul says, ultimately, the question we're revolving around this morning, wouldn't it be better for you to settle this in-house rather than in the public eye? That's the, the primary question he's asking this morning. That, and it's a, it's a rhetorical one. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better for you to settle this in-house rather than in the public domain where everybody else can see our dirty laundry being aired? And he's going to answer this in three different ways. He has three supporting answers to this rhetorical, yes, of course, it's better for you to settle this type of case in-house rather than in the public courts. And now that might seem like an issue that doesn't have a lot of relevance to us. We're not in court. We're not being defrauded by one another. Uh, we don't find that any one of us has a legal case against one another. But I would argue, as we move through this passage today, that there is a lot to be found for us about not only the church's authority in our lives, our responsibility to the church, uh, and quite a number of other implications about what it means to submit to the authority of the church for the benefit of the church and for the benefit, ultimately, of the name of Christ. And so uh, the outline this morning is going to be those three supporting answers that Paul provides to the question of, wouldn't it be better for you to settle this in-house rather than in the public eye? And so he lays out three arguments. I want to look back at verses 2 through 5 to uncover the first argument. Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul is saying, first and foremost, that the church has authority to make some legal decisions in-house. It's the most obvious answer to the question that he's already posed of whether or not it would be better for us, for the churches, to settle issues in-house. And he says, look, the church has authority to handle this type of legal situation. And he starts with a, a pretty common biblical argument. It's, uh, it's called the argument from the greater to the lesser. You, you'll notice this in verse 3. It's a really common uh, wording that we'll, I want to point out to you. He says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then are we able to, in other words, matters pertaining to this life. If we're able to judge angels one day, Paul writes, then how much more competent are we to try trivial cases? If he writes in verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
how much more competent are you to try these trivial cases? It's an argument from greater to lesser. It says if A is true, this big picture scenario, then how much more true will this smaller scenario be? You still see that commonly uh, in law and in practice today. For instance, if I were to go into a 7-Eleven and steal a couple of candy bars, I would be punished legally. But how much more would I be punished if I went into the bank and tried to hold it up with uh, a gun and steal $10,000? That, of course, the punishment for robbing a bank is greater than the punishment for stealing some food from a 7-Eleven. That's the type of argument that Paul is describing here. He says, look... You Christians have to understand that one day you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels. And Paul's not trying to get bogged down in the details here. He doesn't offer any sort of explanation about what that means. And we really don't get much else in Scripture to, to clarify exactly what he has in view by, by judging the world and by judging angels. Because that's not the point. He just says, look, you're, go- you're going to do it. So you have to understand that the church has authority to make judgments here and now about much smaller, trivial cases. The greater to lesser argument here is that he's saying, look, there's going to be more people, there's going to be more important figures, and there's going to be higher stakes one day in the judgments you're going to make than in these worldly, trivial judgments right now. In other words, the church has authority for this type of case because it has authority in even more eternally significant events to come. And so he's trying to get them to understand, look, if, if you've got the qualifications, then do it. Don't, don't put it before other people who uh, aren't even uh, in the church. They don't have any, he writes, any sort of spiritual standing in the church. If you, if you recall back to the, the crux of uh, the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, it's that we've been made wise by our uniting with Christ. And so he's saying, look, even, even the most simple-minded judgment of a Christian is better than an unworldly judgment because we share the mind of Christ. You are competent in all matters to make judgments. But he goes on and says, well, what about if maybe the objection is we, we don't actually have anybody who's wise enough? You see that in verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? And again, it's this obvious and rhetorical. Of course there are. It's what I just said. If we have been united in Christ, if we have salvation, we've been given the mind of Christ. We share in the mind of Christ. And so we're able to make these judgments. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.5, he says, In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Or he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You have the capability to do this. So stop not doing it. Ultimately, if you've got the authority and the manpower, handle your stuff in-house. 
Now, we might have a, a difficult time uh, moving from uh, the, the direct implications of uh, taking believers to court uh, with lawsuits. But I would say that maybe some important application points that you find in this first section uh, of the passage is that the church has authority to be in your business. It's kind of a byproduct unspoken of what he says. That by your membership in the church, you're submitting to the authority of the church. We, we tend to think sometimes that uh, at salvation when we profess that we aren't any longer the sole authority of our lives. It means that nobody has authority over our lives. That when we come to faith, we're acknowledging that we no longer have uh, a claim on what's best for our lives. We say, Lord, you know best. You have declared that because I have broken your law that I'm a sinner, and yet through Christ I am made right with you. And sometimes we hear that and think, well, I'm free from all authority. But what Paul says is, look, as you move from authority to self in salvation, you move to authority under the church. Because ultimately, there aren't any private matters in the church. What affects you individually is ultimately going to have ripple effects in the church. The goal of our, our fellowship is that we might build one another up. So when you struggle... When I struggle, it's going to eventually have an effect on every one of you, on every one of us. So there aren't any private matters per se. What we're trying to, to grasp with our finitude, grasp with our sinfulness, put it to death for the benefit of the church. And that's what Paul is describing here, is that we fall under the authority of the church. But he goes on in verses 6 through 8, uh, and he makes a, a second argument. Let's look at those verses again. Verses 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But brother goes against brother in the court of law, and that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Isn't, wouldn't it be better for you just to be wronged than to, to have a lawsuit at all? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The second argument he's making is that it's better to be wronged if the reputation of God and his church are on the line. That's what he says there at the, the very beginning of those verses. Look, I understand that you have a legal case to be made, right? You, you haven't received your wages. You've been defrauded somehow. And so the, the natural progression would typically be you go to court. But Paul is saying, look, that's a defeat for you that you're going to court. You have a legal right not to be swindled. But he says, isn't it better to try and achieve some sort of restoration instead of punishment? Isn't it better to try and create peace between the parties and, and show the, the, the person who's in the wrong that is defrauding the one who has their wages stolen, isn't it better to bring them to a point of 
forgiveness and understand that they need to apologize, to grow, and to learn. <coughs> Paul's saying, look, you, you let yourselves be wronged if it means that the reputation of God and his church is on the line. Because ultimately what's being communicated by uh, these, these lawsuits that are present there in the Corinthian church is that there isn't a, a real unity in the church. That there hasn't been a, a supernatural knitting together that is fundamental to our experience in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already, what, a defeat for you. A defeat for you. What he, what he means there in describing a defeat is, is that it's a, it's a complete and comprehensive moral failure uh, on the part of the Corinthians. And it's not only a moral failure, but it's one publicly displayed. The, the world understands that uh, to be religious people, regardless of whether they uh, acknowledge the way we believe in Christ, they understand that to be a religious person means you're probably going to act different. Your way of living is going to be different. The way you speak is going to be different. The way you spend your time, your money, your energy is going to be different. But what Paul is saying is, look, if, if you're not acting any different from the rest of the world, if you're not united, if you're taking a brother or sister to court because you've been defrauded, how is that communicating the fundamental difference that ought to be uh, among, amongst every one of us? How does that commend Christ to the world? How does that commend uh, a new way of living? Why, why would someone want to look at our lives and if they don't see anything different, change their way of living? We commend Christ by our, our, our difference, our uprightness, by our holiness, by the unity that we have and we experience and we practice with one another. Uh, I, w- I want to be careful that we don't go too far uh, when we describe the sort of laying down of rights. There's a reason Paul said, look, if you're being defrauded, um, lay, lay down your right to take them to court for the good of the whole. It, it, would, it would be a little different if uh, someone had gone up to a brother or sister and uh, robbed them at gunpoint, or I guess at knife point, or with a stone. I don't know how you would uh, have armed robbery back uh, 2,000 years ago, but it, it would be a little different if bodily harm is on the line. And, and, and there's, a, there's a definite line that we have to begin to draw and say, look, it, it's good and it's right for us to lay down our right to legal recourse. But if, if we're describing the potential of or the experience of bodily harm, then sometimes it's better to continue on. Like I, I don't want to ever insinuate that people who have experienced abuses, physical, sexual, any, any sort of uh, bodily harm at the hands of another brother or sister so-called in the church should ever not go to a court of law and take that there. Uh, because ultimately, when that's the case, you, you've seen example after example of how the church's reputation in the name of the Lord is dragged through the mud when uh, the church is seen as a haven for abusers. 
that, that, that's been an enormous problem that the Catholic Church has struggled to deal with. That instead of coming out, instead of dealing with uh, the, the men and women in positions of power who have uh, abused children, who have abused uh, people in, within their congregation, they, they tried to cover it up thinking that we could just keep it quiet, and if we kept it quiet for long enough, then all of this would just go away. But they got found out. And so the damage, instead of coming out initially and saying, look, this person was wrong, we're sending them to court, we're, we're, we're dealing with this issue as severely as, as we need to, instead of coming out and, and taking the proper channels, they tried to cover it up, and the damage and the fallout is exponentially worse. So sometimes it is better for the good of the church to deal with instances in particular of bodily harm in legal channels. What Paul is talking about is your right to, to pay these sort of petty cases. And I want to be sure that we're always clear that we're not ever putting ourselves in a position to be a haven for abusers. And again, you, you might have a, a difficult time getting from lawsuits that clearly don't exist within us to the sort of real-world application that we're describing. But if we kind of strip away the specifics, if we, if we take away what, what's actually occurring, the lawsuit itself, what Paul is saying is that pettiness in front of people is actually a defeat for the church and for the name of the Lord. What he's trying to describe is that appearances matter. Appearances are, are significant in front of the world. And at the heart of this is a sort of me-first thinking. At the heart of a desire to take someone to court is a sort of, I need to get what's owed to me before the good of the group, before the good of the church. Paul describes an old way of thinking. He, he describes this in verses 11 and 12 that we read, or excuse me, in verse 11, uh, as being a way that is not inheriting the kingdom of God. He says, look, this is not in keeping with the salvation that you have in Christ. The old way of thinking is that my reputation, my rights are more important than anything else. And that's, that hits the nail on the head for us. I mean, every one of us struggles with that issue in thinking that I am more important than the church. I am more important than my brother and sister. But Paul is saying, look, if you're in Christ, the new way of thinking has to be that God's reputation is your first and primary consideration. It is what I'm about to do going to endear Christ or is it going to drag his name to the mud? Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a, that's a, I'm not going to say that that's not a difficult transition to make. That we move from me first to others first, to the church first, to God first. But I, I love this saying that um, I heard when I was a lot younger. Uh, it's an acronym, JOY. And I can't remember who said it first or where I heard it from. But it says, look, you have to, in your Christian walk, walk in a joy 
sort of way that you put Jesus first, then others, then yourself. And, you know, it's a little hokey. It's a little cheesy. But I'll tell you what, it stuck with me. I've held on to that for a long time, man. That uh, to walk in a new life, to walk as the Lord calls us, you put Jesus first, you put others next, and you put yourself least of all. Mm. I like Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. If you'll, you'll turn there with me for just a moment. Jesus describes how we begin to move from uh, a me-first orientation to an others-first, a God-first orientation. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. And so this is one of the the Pharisees and a lawyer. They've kind of bandied together, and they've, uh, at the very end of Matthew, it becomes a pretty common theme that they're going to come to Jesus to try and test him, to try and trap him, so that they might have a reason to, to kill him. And so this is just another instance of uh, them asking Jesus a question to try and catch him in a trap uh, so that they can punish him. Verse 36, Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the great commandment and the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And he goes on and says, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, because on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Mm. This is exactly what I've just described. This sort of others first orientation, that God comes first, Others come next, and you place yourself underneath each of those because it's ultimately better for the group to gain in the long run. Jesus also says in John 13, 35, that by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He's describing the sort of supernatural love that will endear the church to the world. And sometimes when I think about that, I, I, I kind of wonder, well, how, how is that different from other types of, of worldly love that you see uh, outside of the church? Uh, I read an article this week from one of Olivia's friends uh, that described a, a pretty uh, committed sort of love to friendship. Um, this woman was uh, describing her college friends and how uh, over time she kind of began to drift away from some of those. We, we see that happen in our lives, right? Our circumstances change. You might have had kids. You might have moved away. And some of your best friends, they just, you just kind of lose contact, right? She said, look, I, I, I came to understand that those friends, I, I couldn't just let that sort of progressive drift happen. And she described how she renewed commitment to if any one of them ever were sick, if any one of them ever couldn't take care of her kids, she wanted to, at a moment's notice, go take care of the kids, go make them soup, go, go, go do something that would be the greatest benefit to them, to just be there at times. And I thought, man, that is a, that's more sacrifice than we're willing to make sometimes mm-hmm. as a church. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
I mean, I look at that kind of love in this, in this article from a, from a non-Christian and think that's a pretty significant commitment to love a friend, to love a sister. So, so what kind of love is it that, that actually stands out and communicates something significant, communicates something powerful about Jesus and his church? And I would say there, there are two qualities, duration and intensity. That eventually, if, if you know somebody long enough, they're going to hurt you. That's just a fact of life. Every one of us is selfish Every one of us fails to uh, think about other people first and foremost. We're, we're not going to walk perfectly in that. Okay, we're, we're going to hurt people. And it's interesting that Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew 18 and says, Lord, if I forgive someone who's wronged me seven times, I'm doing pretty well, aren't I? And Jesus says, Peter, no. Forgive them 70 times seven. He isn't saying, forgive them nearly 500 times. He's saying, look, as many times as it takes, forgive them. How many times has Christ forgiven us? Probably 500 times already this morning. Duration. Continue to forgive despite historical and past and present and future wrongs. And intensity. Jesus goes on in John 15 to say, look, greater love has nobody than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. It's not just dropping everything you're doing at a moment's notice and going and taking soup, which is great. It's a beautiful picture of the kind of self-sacrificing love that says, my needs aren't as important as yours. But Jesus goes on and says, look, greater love is no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. The intensity of that love, not only the the duration, but the intensity of it. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate model of that, that he laid down his life Mm -hmm. so that we might have life. Mm -hmm. Paul makes a third and final argument, though, in verses 9 through 11. Flip there with me as we conclude these arguments. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Hmm. Paul is saying this type of behavior is in the same league as all of these other sins. In the past chapter, we uh, described how sexual immorality in the church was a grounds for church discipline. And so he ties us back into chapter 5 and says, look, this very issue of taking a brother or sister to court over a trivial issue of not getting the money you're owed is in the same league as sexual immorality. And the league is you're not inheriting the kingdom of God. You're not actually acting like Christians. 
It's his most basic and desperate appeal for the Corinthians to deal with this problem in house. He says, how, how could you? How could you allow this to happen? He points us back to Christ. You were washed. You were made clean. You were sanctified. You were justified. You, you didn't have any good standing before the, the judge of the universe. But he made you right. He made you just. Your punishment was paid for, and so you're off the hook. But it doesn't mean you're off the hook as you continue to walk before brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean you can do as you want. Mm -hmm. To do as you want is to live like the old you. To live like the dead you. He appeals to them. Look, Jesus' blood has washed you. And so when you're feeling selfish, when you feel like you ought to come first... Such were some of you. But you were washed. When you're feeling angry, such were some of you. But you were washed. When you're tempted to lust, such were you. But you were washed. Fill in the blank with any sin you want. Such were you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And that's not who you are anymore. You were that. You are in Christ. Paul describes that masterfully in Romans 6, probably better here than anywhere else. I want to read the first eight verses with you. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. describing the sort of discontinuity of continuing to live in sin. If you're a believer, he says the power of sin is broken and dead in you. It's no longer your master. Listen to how he says it in beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It says, look, you have died to the power of sin. You were in a prison of sin. And God flung open the doors of the prison, set your chains free, and what you want to do is just continue to sit in the prison? It, it's mind-boggling. He says, remember, 
who you once were and remember who you now are. That you're no longer defined by your selfishness and your anger, your self-centeredness, your lustfulness. You're defined by your washedness, your cleanness, your rightness before God. He says, don't, not only forget about what has been done, he points you at what's to come. In verse 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what's the opposite side of that? That those made right will inherit the kingdom of God. The implication is that washed people will inherit the kingdom. You who once were dirty have been given the cleanness of Christ. Look, in in the culture of the time, it it was common practice that the firstborn would receive the inheritance and have the place of honor. He would be the one to carry on the name of the family and receive all the designations. And Paul is saying, you are inheriting the kingdom. You have been given the same status as God's firstborn, only begotten son. Why do you continue to live as if you're something you aren't? Imagine that. We will inherit the kingdom. Who else has a better rags to riches story? That's why the song sings, This is my story, my song praising my Savior all the day long. I've heard an old, old story. We, we, we have the best story. This is a, it's a common trope in Hollywood, right? Rags to riches. We've got the best one. We describe the lowest low and the highest high possible. They say, come be a part of it. We invite others to be a part of it. It, it is good news. When, when we delight in that good news. We're going to tell other people about it. Mm-hmm. And so understand not only what's been done for you, but what's to come, and that you and I are a part of that story, and that other people can be a part of that story. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's much to be commended from this section uh, of the letter in chapter 6. That it empowers us to resolve conflicts in-house. That it teaches us about the authority of the church in our lives. But most importantly, it communicates our desperate need to remember the gospel in every circumstance. This is the theme of this sermon series that Paul's letter to the Corinthians is about a gospel-shaped life. That when we encounter sin in our lives... We reflect and remember and recall what Christ has done for us so that we might turn away and turn to Christ. The call is always to remember the gospel. Don't forget it. Preach it to yourself. Remember, remember, remember. Let's pray.